morning. How is everyone? You good? Great. It's been a funny week, hasn't it? Funny week, but God is good. God is the same yesterday, today, forever. He is faithful. He'll never let us go. And that's why we love him, because he is always there for us, no matter what's going on. So um, I'm Richard. This is my wife, Sarah, whom you met a couple of weeks ago of you here. She's doing her first day for the church tomorrow, apparently, as assistant pastor. So a uh, little bit about us. We've been married 26 years. You've got that one right. Good start. And uh, We've got three sons who have one. Well, the eldest has just finished at Brighton Uni, uh, Sussex Uni, but living in Brighton doing music tech. Got another son doing theology in Durham and the third one doing... PPE, which is politics, philosophy, and economics in Leeds. So they're, they're great fun. We, we love them. They're all back for the summer, and then they're going uh, back to various parts of the UK. So Aaron asked me this morning that I just speak on the subject of what it means to be a disciple or to be a follower of Jesus. So that's just what I want to do. I'm going to particularly teach from three different passages in the Bible. So if you've got a Bible with you, I love the way Joe said the other week, turn it on. I'm going to say open up a page because I'm old school. Or turn it on, whatever device you've got or if you've got the paper, do that as well. Um, if I could have a first slide out, I'm going to use some illustrations. And I just... Are we, yeah, great. So I just want to read that verse that you can see there. It comes from 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Those are some verses that have gripped me over the years. That I've summarized as the title of today's message, which is to live for him who died for us. Now, I've been brought up in church most of my life, actually, all my life. And I, I do remember as a, a young Christian being told this, the priorities that you should have in life can be remembered by an acronym or a short word, joy. Don't know if anybody else had that. Jesus first, others next, and yourself last. And I've been thinking about that, and I'm not sure I hold to that anymore because actually if Jesus is to be first and foremost in our life, that doesn't leave room for anything else if we're really serious about him. That doesn't mean that we don't reach out to others and we don't care for ourselves, but it's because we love Jesus and we are devoted fully and wholeheartedly to him that those other things work out in practice. So that, I think, is a false priority. It's a bit of a linear sequence. Well, how, how much does God get? Well, he can have, Jesus can have 60% because he's J. Others can have 30 because that leaves 10 for me. And I'm thinking, no, no. It's all or nothing, because these scriptures here say that those who follow Jesus should no longer live for themselves, but live for him who died for them. And Jesus is pretty pointed about this in the Gospels himself, where he, he talks about, you have to totally die to yourself and follow me. You have to put old ways behind you and give yourselves 100% to me. And I love the motivation that is spoken of in these verses. It's because of Christ's love. The reason we give ourselves wholeheartedly to follow Jesus is because he gave his life for us. And anything else than 100% would not be 
good enough. I was thinking just as we were singing there, the, the verse about him, which goes like this. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my, not my 60%, my all. So we're going to look at the subject of living for him who died for us. And I love pictures. I'm a very visual person. And thankfully, I've found three pictures in different scriptures. Pictures in scriptures, wasn't planning to say that. Um, that will help us understand what it looks like to live for him who died for us. So firstly, we're going to look at being living sacrifices. Secondly, we're going to be looking at living, being living stones. And lastly, we're going to be looking at being living stories. Right, you can see it there. So this is where I want to delve into the Bible. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy and sisters, you're not left out, it's just a sort of general greeting, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to a pattern of his world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So we're instructed, well, we're not instructed, we're urged, we're encouraged strongly to be living sacrifices. And I want to just explain what that means. I'll explain what it doesn't mean, first of all. It doesn't mean that we are trying to make good for our own sin. Because Jesus has already done that for us. When Jesus died on the cross, he demonstrated the full mercy, the full love, and the full grace and the justice of God, where all of our sin was put upon him. So in the Old Testament, they, that's the time before Jesus came, there was this system of sacrifice that was needed to deal with the sins of the people. And if you're interested in finding more about this, read a book of Hebrews. It gives a really good description. And in that book, it details a system where the people would offer the best of their livestock, a sheep, a bull, a calf, and give it to a priest, and the priest would then sacrifice that animal, a bit gory, on their behalf. And that sacrifice was accepted in proxy for the sin of the people who gave it, and God forgave the people of their sin. The problem was it didn't last very long. And the book of Hebrews describes how day after day, year after year, the priest had to keep making the sacrifice using these animals, but it could never fully remove the sin and the guilt of the people until the perfect sacrifice was presented before God on our behalf, the man Jesus Christ. So when we're thinking of us being a sacrifice, we are thinking not of making sacrifice for our sin because that has already been done once and for all. So thankfully, there's no animals needed to be sacrificed. Thankfully, we don't have to do anything to earn forgiveness because Jesus has done that for us. So instead of this being a sacrifice for sin, the writer to the Romans here is saying, offer your lives as a sacrifice for service. Why? Because God has been merciful to you. It's the same concept as we read at the beginning. Christ's love compels us. God's mercy compels us to give our life, our soul, our all to him. 
So what does that mean in practice? I think it means that over time and daily and maybe even hourly during the day, we remind ourselves of who we are and who we're living for. We're living for God and for Jesus. And we're saying, Lord, what is it you would have me do? What is it you would have me be in this situation? Maybe even echoing the words that Jesus himself spoke, not my will, but yours be done. So we offer ourselves as a sacrifice. In other words, we say, I am dying to my own way, my own agenda, my own purpose, and I'm going to live for yours. And that's a glorious place to be, actually, because we know that God's plan is perfect for us. We know that he has the best plans for us, but it sometimes takes time to to grow into those, to realize those. And here, the writer to the Romans gives us some really practical advice. He says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of his world. Or other translations put it this way. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. I love that. There's a lot of voices in and around us, particularly in the days of social media, where you are just surrounded. I am just surrounded by opinions, fake news, a lot of that. Um, negativity, falsehood, sometimes truth. That's there as well, so I'm not dissing it all. But what is it that is shaping us? Very often it's what people say. It's what we think people say about us. It's what we think people say is the way forward. And we're reminded there in Scripture that we shouldn't let that squeeze us into a mold. The message puts it this way. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit fit into it without even thinking. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. So what do we have to do? Well, we have to renew our mind. That's what it says here in Romans. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let me just pick up on that word, be transformed. That word is, you might have come across it in, um, I was going to say O-level biology. You don't do O-levels anymore. What do you do? GCSEs, biology. And... uh, we know that a, a butterfly doesn't, isn't born as a butterfly, right? It is created as what? Further back than a caterpillar. A little egg, actually. And then a caterpillar. And then a... No, it's a chrysalis. Forget the chrysalis stage. That crusty, horrible little thing that looks all flaky. And then, out of this chrysalis, emerges the most resplendent butterfly. And that process is known as metamorphosis, literally the changing of shape or form. And it's that word, because that is a Greek word, that is used here in Romans, where the writer says, be transformed. Literally, have such a radical transformation from being a a caterpillar, a chrysalis, to being a butterfly. How? By the renewing of our minds. And what I want to say is, that's our responsibility, We have to take on board the responsibility for renewing our minds. That's what it means to be a Christian, to say, actually, what does God say about this? What does God say about me? And that can take a long time, and it can um, sometimes be difficult because all the other opinions and voices we're hearing. But the best way to renew our minds is to immerse ourselves in truth. So where is truth found? Truth is found in the person of Jesus Christ and in the Bible. And I want to encourage you, first of all, to just immerse yourself in truth, to be transformed by immersing yourself in truth. It might take a long time to do that, but 
The Bible is very clear that it, it's an effort on our part and the Holy Spirit takes our effort and he transforms us. And over time, we begin to see things as God sees things. Instead of feeling that we're, we're not worthy or we're not good enough, actually the voice that is first and foremost in our head is, you are worthy, you are good enough because we have filled our mind with truth from his word. It's something that Jesus did. So if you think of Jesus here um, as an account in the Gospels where he was tempted by the devil. So he was in the desert and the devil presents him with three different challenges. And every time Jesus' immediate response to that was, no, I'm not going there because it is written. And he knew his, his scriptures, in his case, the Old Testament, inside out. He knew right from wrong because he has taught himself what was true, what was good, what was pure, what is trustworthy. And I was thinking about this. I don't know if you were ever on, um, when you're on the internet and you've been searching for a new pair of boots, say. So I'm searching for a new pair of boots on Debenhams or John Lewis or something. And then you go onto Facebook and by the side is an advert for a new pair of boots. Or you go on Gumtree and there it is, new pair of boots. And eBay, would you like to buy some boots? And it's like, how do you know I'm looking for boots? And the reason they know you're looking for boots is there's something called algorithms that sit behind the search software that um, reads what you're searching for and thinks and builds up a picture over time of that person is really interested in boots. So I'm going to present them with boots next time they come on here. The renewing of a mind is a bit like creating spiritual algorithms. So we feed ourselves truth. God is good. I am pure and holy in Christ Jesus. He has got a plan and a purpose for me. And then when something pops into our life that is contrary to that, the thing that is presented by the side of it is this spiritual algorithm. And you've even got a choice. Which do I believe? Do I believe what the Bible and God says about me and be transformed by renewal of my mind? Or do I believe what the world says? So I want to encourage us to renew our thinking as living sacrifices, and then we will be able to prove and test what God's good and perfect will is. So the first way that we live for him is by being a living sacrifice. It's, it's saying, God, I offer my life to you fully, wholeheartedly, unreservedly. In doing so, I'm going to commit myself to renew my mind in order that I might see where you want me to go, be who you want me to be, do what you want me to do. Okay, let's look at number two. The second pitch we've got is living stones. We've had living sacrifices. We've now got living stones. I'm going to read from a different scripture here. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says this, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to, a ho to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So we've had this picture of living sacrifices, how Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice for us and because of his mercy to us, we're to be a living sacrifice to him, our lives laid out before him. But this picture is talking about Jesus pictured as a living stone, someone whom you can build your life on and depend upon. 
Some people rejected Jesus, that's what it says here. Some people accepted him, and if you accept him, it's going to be the best foundation for your life. Because he doesn't change, he is so good, he is trustworthy. But the writer here is saying, in the same way that Jesus was a living stone, you, the church, is being built together as living stones. And this is an emphasis I want to bring. Um, One of the problems with English as a language is when we hear the word you, we don't know whether that's talking about one person or you, everybody. Americans have a way of saying you all. And someone once said to me, I wish the Bible had a Texas version. So we know that this is actually a you all. So when the writer here is saying you also like living stones, he is saying collectively... As a church, we are being built together. So this isn't an individual thing. This is a collective thing. And it's a wonderful picture. He talks about a spiritual house. The unique thing about being part of a church is this. God dwells here by his spirit. You can be part of anything else and you won't find that. You can get a lot of good from other things, social clubs, drop-in centers, and I'd encourage you to be part of those. But here, God dwells by his spirit. This is a spiritual house. This is a house like no other house. This is a house where Jesus is present by his spirit and anything can be possible because of that. And our lives then, as we live as living stones, provide strength to one another. That's what I want to bring out, that we we are to commit as followers of Jesus to bring strength to each other's lives. So when we meet, there's a social agenda, if you like. There's rubbing shoulders, there's fellowship. But I tell you what, it's so much more deeper than that, isn't it? It's, hey, let me pray for you. Hey, I think God wants to say that to you because he wants to remind you that everything's going to be all right. And that is what it means to be, as described here, a holy priesthood. So we're in a, a, a say a type of church, a denomination of church. It doesn't really recognize the title of priest, but some churches have priests and you can recognize them by uh, a special collar they wear. What has been said here and what I believe is right is that everybody, you all, are being built together as a holy priesthood. So everybody here is a priest. What do you mean a priest? What does a priest do? Right, let's boil it down. This is what a priest does. A priest represents God to man. And a priest represents man to God. So we can be an incredible strength to each other as we get alongside one another as living stones and don't stand in the way of Jesus, but we introduce Jesus. That's what the best priest does. It says there is only one high priest. His name is Jesus. But as described here, I'm a a priest as well, and I'm going to bring Jesus into this. I'm going to bring Jesus into your situation. And that's just a, a glorious picture, isn't it? That we are being built together as living stones. The unique aspect of church is that God dwells by his spirit. And when I, I've got a very broad view of church. So this is the church gathered. When you're out and about in the week, that can be the church scattered if you like. But where Jesus said, Jesus said, wherever a couple are gathered in my name, there I am as well. So that is church. So Sunday is just a small part of church. But you go in the power of the Spirit. We go as priests, it says here, living such good lives among the world that they may see what we do and glorify God who is in heaven. Two things I want to particularly just uh, 
draw out because I was thinking on this this picture of stones. Um, you might remember Jesus uh, was brought into a, a situation. I think it's in it's in one of the Gospels where a, a woman had been found and a man committing adultery in a tent at a festival, more or less. You can read it for yourself. And the, the Jewish leaders had dragged this woman out and saying, she deserves to be stoned. That's what the law says. That anyone who is committing adultery should be stoned. Jesus gets drawn into this situation and he looks around at the crowd and says, right, who of you is perfect and never committed a sin? Pick up the stone and throw it first. And the gospel writer records for us that one by one, they left. They dropped their stones and left, starting with the oldest, finishing with the youngest, because actually the, the older you are in life, you actually realize Jesus got a very good point there. <laughs> I've messed up a lot in my life. No, my stone's gone. And when you're just a bit young and a bit, ooh, yeah, I'm all right. Yeah, a bit judgmental, a bit black and white, a bit arrogant. No, Jesus has got a point there as well. And one by one, they left. And the, I think there's a prophetic element here that living stones don't condemn, they affirm. And just want to put that out there. Let's build into our lives as living stones affirmation towards one another. Whatever shape or form that takes, always be looking to affirm. On another occasion, Jesus was riding into Jerusalem and the Jewish leaders were getting really critical of him because people were starting to praise him. And he said, what, what, what is going on? If these people don't praise me, even the stones will cry out. Of a living stone himself says, actually, living stones praise, they don't criticize. And there it is. I just want to point those two things out. If we could take those away today as to how we build one another up, how we are living stones to one another, it would be this. We affirm and we praise, we don't condemn and criticize. And when I put up there, um, dressed by God, I don't mean dressed in clothes, a picture of taking a stone from a quarry and putting it, knocking it into a shape to be used in the building is known as dressing. A stonemason will say, well, I get my hammer, I get my chisel, and I dress it. And we must allow God to dress us, to knock off the sharp edges. God's word in the Old Testament is described as a hammer, described in the New Testament as a sharp blade, a sword, or a chisel. And part of being a, a disciple and a follower of Jesus is, here I am, knock the rough edges off me. I've got them. I bow before you, Lord. Speak to me, because I want to change to be more like Jesus. Living sacrifices, living stones. The third one is living stories. So we are to be living sacrifices to God. We're be, to be living stones and a strength to each other. But we're also called to be living stories, where our lives are a story to the world. Again, I was brought up with this concept. In the same way I was brought up with this, I think, this false concept of joy, Jesus, others, yourself, when it should just be Jesus, and everything else works through that. I was brought up, um, I heard it said quite a lot, faith is private. Your faith is private. It should be kept to yourself. I think I've got a different view of that now, in that my faith is personal, but because it's personal, it's public. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. It's personal because I have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But that relationship shapes absolutely everything I do. And I'm 
urging that to be the case for us today as we lay our lives as sacrifices and an offering to God. So that means that when I go to work, my values are taken from my faith. It's not private because you're going to see my values. I won't tell you a lie. I'll work hard. I'll be trustworthy. I'll keep confidence. And the reason I will do that is because I have a personal faith in Jesus Christ. So rather than our faith being private, it is definitely personal and it ought to be public. And it ought to be demonstrated as a story or a letter. These verses in Corinthians say this. You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but the spirit of a living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of a human heart. And it got me thinking about what sort of letter might our life be? Um, and I've had some letters sent to me in the past. I've had some great letters, some terrible letters. But one letter I found was a wonderful letter. This wasn't sent to me, but I found this, which probably ranks as the best complaint letter ever. Um, and this was written concerning the flight from Mumbai to Heathrow on the 7th of December 2008, uh, the Virgin Airlines flight. So Richard Branson was a recipient of this letter. I love the Virgin brand. I really do which is why I continue to use it despite a series of unfortunate incidents over the last few years. The latest incident takes a biscuit. Ironically, by the end of the flight, I would have gladly paid over a thousand rupees for a single biscuit. Following the culinary journey of hell, I was subjected to at the hands of your corporation. Look at this, Richard, just look at this. I imagine the same questions are racing through your brilliant mind as were racing through mine on that fateful day. What is this? Why have I been given it? What have I done to deserve this? And which one is a starter and which one is a dessert? You don't get to a position like yours, Richard, with anything less than a generous sprinkling of observational power. So I know that you will have spotted the tomato next to the two yellow shafts of sponge on the left. Yes, it's next to the sponge shaft with the green paste. That's got to be the clue, hasn't it? No no sane person, person would serve a dessert with a tomato, would they? Well, answer me this, Richard. What sort of animal would serve a dessert with peas in? I know it looks like a bargee, but it's custard, Richard. Custard. It must be a pudding. Well, you'll be fascinated to hear that it wasn't custard. It was a sour gel with a clear oil on top. Its only redeeming feature was that it managed to be so alien to my palate that it took away the taste of a curry emanating from a miscellaneous central cuboid of beige matter. Perhaps a meal on the left might be the dessert after all. Anyway, this is all irrelevant at the moment. I was raised strictly but neatly by my parents, and if they knew I had started dessert before the main course, a a sponge shaft would be the least of my worries. So let's peel back the tin foil on the main dish and see what's on offer. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking it's more of a bargy custard. I admit I thought the same too, but no, it's mustard, Richard. Mustard. More mustard than any man could consume in a month. On the left, we have a piece of broccoli and some peppers in a brown glue-like oil. And on the right, the chef has prepared some mashed potato. The the potato masher had obviously broken, and so it is decided the next best thing would be to pass the potatoes through the digestive tract of a bird. 
Once it was regurgitated, it was clearly then blended and mixed with a bit of custard. Mustard, sorry, mustard. Everybody likes a bit of mustard, Richard. By now, I was actually starting to feel a little hyperglycemic. I needed a sugar hit. Luckily, there was a small cookie provided. It caught my eye earlier due to its baffling presentation. It appears to be in an evidence bag from the scene of a crime. A crime against cooking. Either that or some sort of backstreet underground cookie purchased off a gun-toting maniac high in his own supply of yeast. You certainly wouldn't want to be caught carrying that through customs. Imagine biting into a piece of brass, Richard. That would be softer on the teeth than the specimen above. So that was that, Richard. I didn't eat a thing. My only question is, how can you live like this? I can't imagine what dinner around your house is like. It must be something like out of a, document, a nature documentary. As I said at the start, I love your brand, I really do. It's just such a shame a simple thing could bring it crashing to its knees and begging for sustenance. Yours sincerely. What a brilliant complaint. So our lives are letters. Our lives are stories told to the world. And the question I want to ask is this as we finish. What sort of story are we telling to the world? Is our story one of constant complaint or is it of praise? Is it a love letter or is it a letter of hate? Is it a letter of resignation that you might write when you finish a job and saying, I've had enough, I'm moving on? Or is it a letter of hope? As we give our lives to Christ, as we build one another up, as we follow him and he fills us with his spirit, our faith is personal not private, and it's lived out in the public arena. And we're urged to be stories to the world. It's quite a, quite a challenge, quite a remarkable thing, but a, a very blessed thing that we can have influence on people's lives. That people in us can see how God might want to relate to them. That is a wonderful thing. And it's often through observation and just rubbing shoulders um, as you get along in life, that people see that. A few years ago, we had someone come and live with us. So let me tell you a brief story as I finish. We met um, a young girl called Amber when she was in her early teens, and she came to our front door carol singing with her brother. Sarah opened the front door and been a music teacher. She, she commented on how brilliant their voices were, and they were. The voices were absolutely sensational. What wasn't so good was that they got verse a line from Away in a Manger mixed up with a line from When Shepherds Watch. And they didn't have any cow sheets. It was all a bit of a mishmash. But they were there singing for us on our doorstep at Christmas. And Sarah said, does your music teacher know you sing like that? What wonderful voices. And uh, we invited him from, them in for hot chocolate. And um, we discovered the reason they were out carol singing was that they were from a broken home and the stepdad, who was a drug addict, had said, you need to go out and earn £35 tonight. Don't come back till you've got £35 because I need to buy my drugs. So we built up a friendship with um, Amber and her brother over a period of time. And they came often to our house where we were running an experimental church and rubbing shoulders with us. We then lost contact with her for about five years. And then when she was in her early 20s, and this is another story for a different time, but she miraculously came into contact with us by being in the garden of a house next door where we had just moved the previous week. It was a bizarre circumstance, absolutely bizarre. And we discovered her again. By that point, 
she was living on the street. She was a down and out. She was into some stuff. And I felt very convicted that I've just moved into a new house. We've got an extra room, which we had plans for. And I said, Sarah, I cannot turn away from my own flesh and blood. I know Isaiah tells me that. And I know Jesus is challenging us. We've got to take her in. So we took her in and she lived with us for about six months. She lived with us for about six months. And during that time, she gave her life to the Lord, became a Christian, again through some spiritual gifts. Actually, there was a word of knowledge over her life during a, what we know as a connect group meeting in the home. And God really spoke very clearly to her and she gave her life to Jesus, which was wonderful. And then she was able to move out, um, get assisted accommodation at YMCA and then move on to her own flat and take up a job and what have you. And then when we moved here... Uh, 10 years ago, we used to keep in regular touch with her. We used to pay for her to come over and see us. Um, she was like a, a daughter at a distance, I guess. And we'd have regular phone calls with her. And she very excitedly said one week, Sarah, I've been listening to UCB radio. I've, I've got so much from it. But here's the thing. I know you told me all this stuff years ago when I lived with you. And this is what she said. But I was too busy watching you live to listen to anything you said. Wow. Our lives are stories to the world. And here was a young girl who actually, if I'd have said to her, God loves you, her concept of love from her broken home with abuse was just so alien to what I was trying to convey, it was actually meaningless to say that. When she saw love demonstrated in her family, where we have grace, we have patience, we have arguments, we forgive, we make up. She realized, I now understand what love is. But here's this, she said this, I was too busy watching you live to listen to anything you said. And many people in our lives might be like that. There may be people that we work with, that we bump up to in the school um, playing field who just are observing us and that's a good thing because we can start to share our story with them so three things about being a disciple I want to leave it there and hand back to Graham but the emphasis is this it's a hundred percent it's living for him who died for us it's living as a sacrifice before God it's living as stones to bring strength to each other and it's living as stories to a world that they might come into a glorious relationship with Jesus Christ as well. Amen. Graham.